Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from their labours at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. It is, of course, now September. You don't need me to tell you that. And uh, sadly, COVID-19 is still here. And then after the experience of lockdown and uh, a strange summer and the new normal of social distancing and uh, masks and test and trace and quarantine from foreign holidays and kids going back to school and sitting in separate desks and, and all of that stuff, working from home, I guess all of us have got many questions and, and quite a lot of frustrations. It has been the most strange of years, hasn't it? And yet, with the experience of what happens when everything normal, all the things we look forward to, all those uh, punctuated points in our year that just kind of get put aside, we've got that experience and it, it surely must ask us to come down to one question. Is this it? Really, is, is this what life is all about? And if COVID-19 or, or, or something similar just keeps on going, is this, is, have I arrived? Is this it? It's an important question. Is this it? And yet the great news is that although we may not necessarily have spotted it, as God has given us the Bible as a handbook for life, actually the Bible asks that question time and time again. And it's got tremendously helpful answers. You know, this isn't just one book, although we have it on our shelves as one book. It's, it's 66 books written over 1,600 years by about 40 different authors. It's unequally uh, uh, split into the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, the time before the Lord Jesus was born, and the 27 books of the New Testament with the account of his, life, of his birth and his death and his resurrection and his life on earth and all the implications thereafter and the writings of the apostles and so on and the early church. In the Old Testament, the first unequal half, those 39 books, God introduces himself, not just as God, the only one that there is, 
but as Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the promise-keeping, never-changing, always and forever God, the one who is love and justice. Uh, Well, you can read for yourself Genesis, and you will see him introducing himself there. And among those 39 books are different types of literature. Uh, There is is history, uh, there is prophecy, and there is this category that uh, uh, tends to be known amongst theologians as, as the wisdom literature, uh, books like Psalms and Proverbs and, and a number of others. Indeed, last week we dipped into the book of Proverbs and we asked the question, what is wisdom? And we, we looked at that last Sunday morning. Maybe you'd like to listen back at some point. With the exception of Psalms, however, this wisdom literature doesn't often clearly put God center stage in the writing. Actually, what very often the wisdom literature does is put human beings center stage in the writing, and and God kind of in the background. The book of Ruth is like that. The book of Esther is like that, where where human beings and their experience of living in a broken world and responding to its brokenness and responding to his love, kind of that sits in the background, the wisdom literature allows us to look and examine human behavior and, and reactions and responses and feelings and attitudes all clearly visible in the light of God's plans. Someone has said that the wisdom literature of the Bible is like a neighbor whom we don't really know, uh, but whom, when we see them on the other side of the street or just walking, we'll say, hello, good morning, how are you? Uh, But never really get any further than that. You know what that's like? You must have neighbors like that. All of us have neighbors like that, don't we? Well, you kind of know you should get to them, but somehow the opportunity's never been there, and you may know their name, maybe not, but you know where they live, and you say, good morning, but somehow they're just a little bit too far away. Uh, When Ruth and I were first married, we had a neighbor just like that. He was quite elderly, and I hadn't got to know him really at all, other than say good morning, apart from one day when there was a problem with some shared space, and um, he and I had reason to speak properly, actually about some shared space that he wasn't very happy with. It was nothing really to do with me. Our first conversation, therefore, was quite tense, but, but as we took the time to get to know one another, so, so we discovered actually there was a wealth of stuff in common, and more to the point, I discovered I could learn a great deal from him. And for a, a couple of years when we lived there, actually we became good friends. I say the Bible is like a neighbor like that. Uh, the, the wisdom literature is like a neighbor like that. And no book of the Bible is more so, can that be true, someone that we should get to know and very often don't than this book of Ecclesiastes that we're going to look at this morning. But I should warn you that it's going to be quite uncomfortable. The benefits are massive, however. John Calvin, the theologian, described it, that we discover wisdom both by knowledge of God and also, in the light of that, knowledge of ourselves. And looking at Ecclesiastes is going to be uncomfortable because in the opening verses of Ecclesiastes, we are confronted with the very real question that I asked a few moments ago that we tend to shy away from. Is this it? We'll come back to verse 1 of chapter 11 in just a moment. And who wrote it? 
But right at the start, I want us to get into verse 2, which is really the motto for the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me just turn back to it in my Bible, because having picked it up, I've lost the page. There we go. Ecclesiastes uh, 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 chapter 1 and verse 2. And the first thing that, that this motto, as it were, of the whole book says is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Just read it with me. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. You know, that same phrase is right at the start, and it's also in the last chapter, right at the end, that everything, as he puts it, is meaningless. If you're using the old authorized of King James Version of the Bible, or maybe if you're using a more modern translation like the ESV, you'll find that it's translated there, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, uh, Vanity tends to make us think of uh, uh, um, being overly concerned with how we look, but but the sense is the same, that it's not talking about how we look, it's, it's the fact that it's a fleeting thing. Actually, what they're all trying to get to is the basic nothingness of what the writer originally said. What he actually said was smoke or mist or breath, vapor. It's all just vapor. Everything is just vapor, about as significant as as mist from your breath on a cold day. It's there, but you try and grab it. It's not really there at all. You know, various psalms carry the same idea. Actually, not just about everything, but but specifically about human beings. So let me quote to you from Psalm 39, verse 5. Don't bother to turn to it. Let me just read it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 39, You have made my days a mere handbreadth, a span of my years as nothing before you. Each man's life is but a breath. Literally, it's the same word. A a mist, a, a nothing. Or Psalm 144. O Lord, what is man that you care for him? The son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a fleeting shadow. Do you ever think of of the world in those terms? Not very comfortable thinking about them in those terms, is it? Do you know, if we're being honest with ourselves, particularly as we get older, we have to admit that we really know from experience that verse 2 is true. Actress Joan Collins named it plainly when she said that being born beautiful is a bit like being born rich and becoming progressively more poor. In other words, that everything just gets to nothing. But the writer of Ecclesiastes goes further. He says that all of that, that all that is, uh, he says that, that, that all of that is basically true about everything. It's basically nothing. Everything in the end amounts to nothing. But then he says, look around you and see if what I've said is true. You can see for yourself. It's the second point. Everything is meaningless and you can see for yourself. Pick up verse three with me. What does a man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north and round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. All the streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place where the streams come from, there it returns again. As you and I look at everything under the sun, which is a kind of kind of code word that will keep on appearing in Ecclesiastes to to describe the the here and now and what we can see. 
As we can clearly see from what's obvious in our world, nothing we do actually, in the end, long term, makes any difference at all. However hard any of us work, verse 3. We won't ever actually change anything permanently, he says. Now, you might want to challenge that. We'll come back to it in a second. The world in which we live is on a, is on a basically endless treadmill of natural cycles. Verses 4 to 7 describe those natural cycles very well, don't they? Verse 4, people grow up, they have kids, and die. The kids grow up, they have kids, and die. Those kids grow up, they have kids, and die. Now, I know it's interrupted, not everybody has kids, and... Uh, but, but in the end, his point is generations come and generations go. Nothing really changes. Verse 5, one day simply follows another. Lockdown has felt a little bit like that at times, hasn't it? When everything else has been stripped away, we know the experience of verse 5. Verse 6, however dramatic the weather is, it eventually comes back to be the same Again, the wind blows to the south and then to the north and then to the south and then to the north. And yes, it gets to the west and the east, but in the end it just... And verse 7, even the water cycle, well, it is the water cycle. I know very well that some of the glaciers are melting, and we'll come to that comment in a minute, but, but in the end, it just goes round and round. And his point is this, that nothing changes. We like to think that we're making a difference. And the dismal picture painted by verse 4 of generations coming and going surely misses the point of high days and holidays and joy and celebration of family and relationships. Well, well, well it, yes, it does miss that point, but, but such things surely happen and we can enjoy them. Yet the writer wants us to recognize the truth that just like vapor, which is there, but when you try to grab it, it's not. Actually, none of that makes any difference in the long run. Actually, if we look at ourselves in the privacy of a mirror, and here we have the opportunity to look at ourselves in the reality of what the New Testament writer James calls the mirror of God's Word, all of the truth of that actually makes us feel rather weary. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. And you and I want to read that and say, but hang on, I, I understand the point he's making, that things just go round and round, but that simply isn't the whole story. There's so much more to say. It's not as simple or as dismal as all of that. There are differences. There's always something new to see and always something new to hear. And as negative and undermining and time-wasting as social media so often proves to be, at least it has proved that there are loads of differences and loads of connections and loads of great uh, relationships in our world that we can watch and hear and experience for ourselves. Yeah? You think there's something new in social media? Look again at verse 8. Because actually it has proved, social media has proved verse 8 to be true. The eye never has enough of seeing. How much time if you're a Facebook or an Instagram or a Snapchat person do you spend just seeing more and more and more and more? Your eyes never have enough, do they? It's just there. It's new. It's an experience. But the ear never has its full of hearing. Before social media, there was telly. Before telly, there was radio. Before <laughs> there's gossip. 
We have an endless appetite for novelty. But actually that appetite makes no difference. Because in truth, there is nothing new. Which is the next point. Verse 9. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was there already long ago. It was there before our time. Again, I've said that we want to argue with this guy, this writer of Ecclesiastes. Look, you're arguing that it's meaningless and you're trying to demonstrate it by these different things. But but there are things that are new, aren't there? We've got all kinds of examples. Look, look at changes in technology and, and computers and the internet, internet. I said social media a moment ago. Look at biomedical science and so on. It's all changing at a fantastic pace. In fact, there's a law of uh, computing, isn't there, that everything doubles in speed every 18 months. Well, yes, but no. Is it actually making that much of a difference? Well, people might live slightly longer lives, that's true. With slightly better health, that's true. But the facts of verse 4 are still there. Generations come and generations go. Or what about the environment? We like to think we're changing it, or maybe we don't like to think we're changing it. You know, the whole global warming argument. People that believe that we're changing it. But actually, look back farther enough in history, and you'll see there has been ice ages that have come and gone, and global warming has come and gone. There have been mass extinctions, and not least the flood itself, and there will doubtless be again. For us today, the big news is COVID-19, a global pandemic that is killing millions, horrendous. But you know very well that there have been other pandemics in history, What we're living with is nothing like as bad as the Black Death that killed millions in the Middle Ages and afterwards. Go to Pudding Lane in in, uh, the city of London and the great, uh, uh, at the end of Pudding Lane, the the great uh, um, uh, memorial to the fire of London that ended the ravages of the plague. Uh, It was only 400 years ago there. Just, just, just 150 years ago, there was a typhoid pandemic that went across central London. It, these things come and these things go, sad as they are. There is nothing new under the sun. And even when it comes to at least leaving some kind of legacy, the truth of verse 11 is one that we have recently made even more aware of as statues of famous people have been torn down. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Some of the statues have been torn down in ignorance of knowing what they actually did with their lives. Some, the opposite is true, but even either way, many people didn't notice until recently, and they won't remember again. Why is he saying this? The writer of Ecclesiastes is stating all of this stuff because he wants us to grasp the reality both of his and our situation. That's why he's saying this. And the problem is that although at a very deep down we all know it's true, we tend to go through life avoiding that truth by pretending that it isn't true. 
All sorts of examples I could give you. In fact, when preparing for this, I I came across uh, something that a, a guy called, a theologian called David Gibson had written. And to be honest, his descriptions are so good, I figured that rather than invent some, I could just read you his, because it gets it exactly right. Let me read to you what he says. He says, we avoid this reality by pretending. We play, let's pretend, though we wouldn't call it that. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion, or see our church grow, or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we change jobs or emigrate to the, where it's sunny, we won't experience the horrendous tedium and ordinariness of life. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be more satisfied. Let's pretend that if we get through this week's pile of washing and dirty nappies and shopping lists and school runs and busy evenings, next week we'll be quieter. Let's pretend. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things we want to do and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend that we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free from weariness. Doesn't that resonate with you? There's all sorts of bits of that that resonate with me. I don't deliberately pretend anything, but you get his point, don't you? He's right. Even if you don't call it pretending. You see, what Ecclesiastes chapter 1 does for us is it highlights for us that none of it really works. That actually our experience is that it doesn't really work, but that since we don't know what else to do, we do these things anyway. Or or in the sad case, that some people, they, they, they medicate themselves with drugs or alcohol to escape the reality of pretending. So where does all of this leave us? Everything is meaningless. You can see for yourself and there is nothing new. Why is the writer to Ecclesiastes writing these things? To just make us feel bad? No. No, on the contrary. This is God's handbook for life. This book sits in the, in the whole timeline of the Bible, in the whole wonderful promise of salvation history. The reason he's writing these things actually is to get us to stop pretending. You see, it brings us back to the question I said a few moments ago about who it is that's writing all of this alarming, distressing stuff in the first place. Because when we understand who is writing it, we might just get to the bottom of his motive. Come back with me to verse 1, will you? These are the words of the teacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. I guess you'll be aware that this book wasn't originally written in English, but in Hebrew. And the title teacher is a kind of traditional title for in the English translations of Ecclesiastes uh, for want of anything else. Other, other translations call him the preacher. 
Uh, and that carries the idea too. Actually, the original Hebrew word, which I don't normally quote Hebrew because I'm not a, a heavy Hebrew scholar, but I'll tell you because it's useful. Uh, the original Hebrew word is koheleth. And it literally means a gatherer of the assembly. In other words, this is a guy whose job it is to pull God's people together from different situations and speak to them. So he is both a teacher and a preacher. We're going to call him teacher or preacher in the next few weeks as we go through Ecclesiastes. But more than that, he says that he is a son of David, king of Jerusalem. Some skeptics think that that's just some sort of a pen name. Surely one of the great King David's descendants wouldn't really write a book that wakes up to reality. But that's not the way it runs. If you look later on in chapter 1 and verse 16, as we're going to look at in more detail next week, we'll see how he comes to his conclusion. The preacher says in verse 16, I thought to myself, look, I've grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone else who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Which, which if he's grown in wisdom more than anyone else, basically narrows down the choices of the sons of David to his immediate son, King Solomon, to whom God promised to give wisdom and splendor and power, and who built the great temple in Jerusalem in the first place. He's the great king that wrote most of the Proverbs that we have in the preceding book, and whom, despite his wisdom, sadly squandered much of his opportunity of honoring God in other ways in his life. And I want to propose that maybe this book of Ecclesiastes is an explanation of what he learned. But more than anything else, the fact that he's the son of David means that he knows very well he sits in a line of God's promises to bless. He starts the book by saying, listen, I'm a... I'm a son of David, a king of Jerusalem. That declaration in its own right means that he knows very well, and his readers will know as they read the Bible, that he is part of God's great plan for the world, to bless the world. Our very first parents, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled and sinned against God, were condemned, and yet God promised that a rescuer would come. You follow that line through Noah. You follow it to Abraham, through whom God promised the whole world would be blessed. You follow it from Abraham uh, all the way through to Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's kids. And eventually you come down to Judah and eventually you come to David. We haven't time to rehearse it all right now. But if you look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7, just for a second, just a few pages back in your Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a wonderful promise given there both to David and ultimately to his son Solomon. 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. And God promises this to David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. Well, that's what happened with Solomon. He is the one who will build a house, the temple, for my name, And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. There is a throne that will be established forever. That's the message. That's the promise God makes. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I'll punish him with the rods of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, David's evil predecessor, whom I removed before you. 
All of that was true for Solomon, but look, look beyond now. The, the way God's promises, the way prophecy works in the Old Testament always works. There's a, there's a now and a not yet and a bigger. Here's the bigger, verse 16. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. By declaring, I am the son of David, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, by the grace of God, I sit on a throne where that, that God has promised will last forever. I carry God's promises forever. We saw last week that the wonderful thing about wisdom literature is that it's set in the context of the whole of our Bible and is very honest about our human condition. It isn't intended simply to help us live well in a broken creation. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 certainly tells us there's no hope in what's under the sun anyway. Rather, it's here to tell us how to live as redeemed people in God's plan. And his introductory verse uh, 1 says, here's God's plan, now look at yourselves and see you need it. The guy writing this book knew that although human beings living, were living under the sun, there is no hope of permanence or making a difference or even being remembered, yet God has promised that one day there will be one who comes whose throne and kingdom will last forever. We know his name as Jesus. The promise was fulfilled in him. You remember how at Christmas we remember from Luke 2, that he was born in Bethlehem because he was of the house and line of David. you remember that? That through his min throughout his ministry, people cried out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. Do you remember that? This is the one who told a religious ruler full of questions that he, had the key, he was personally the key to everlasting life. John 3.16, the most famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This writer of Ecclesiastes knew very well that he was the bearer of an everlasting wonderful promise. He didn't know that promise would be fulfilled in Jesus. We read at the start of our time together this morning from 1 Peter that, that he, as a prophet, was longing to look into how the promise would be fulfilled. But we, sitting here in 2020, look back and we can see how it was fulfilled in Jesus. And this writer of Ecclesiastes, with the confidence that he serves the Lord, the promise-keeping, always and forever God, can confidently and courageously ask such honest questions in the knowledge God has the answer. But to be ready for the answer in Jesus, you and I need to understand that we have no hope besides, which is why he's written this book. Next week, we're going to start to put more flesh on the bone of the experience as he demonstrates how thoroughly he examined the question. Is everything meaningless? Yeah. Is this it? Well, but for us in the meantime, let's make sure that we're searching not in ourselves. There is no hope in us. But in Jesus, where all our hope is found.